Hello and welcome to another Perusia podcast. I'm Shabal Reish, your host. And joining me from across the world in California uh, is our good friend from Catholic Answers, full-time apologist, speaker, writer, author. Uh, it is Carlo Broussard, and he joins me now. Uh, hello, Carlo. How are you doing? Hey, Charbel. I'm doing all right, buddy. It's great to be with you. Yeah, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, it was not too long ago where I was in your offices uh, just a month ago, not even, um, over in uh, San Diego. It was so fun to, to see the whole team and yourself. Um, yep. And I feel like it was like another home away from home over there. You guys are doing awesome work. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, it was great having you, man. It was friend among friends, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> well, part um, of the family. That's it. it that's, and that's what I love about, I mean, you, what Catholic Answers do. Uh, it, it's such a uh, very, it's a, you guys are professionals but very uh uh so down to earth you know and so accessible and and sometimes people don't see that side of of, of some of the, our catholic speakers around the world but but what you guys do on a day-to-day -day basis it's, it's quite unique actually answering questions to the catholic faith um and doing it in, in in so many formats and so i just think what a blessing uh to the world to the church uh catholic answers is but even just to know you guys sort of offline you know and and, and personally right, you guys right. are all awesome and it does feel like family absolutely man absolutely it's um, a great place yeah. to it's a great place to work i'm so blessed to be a, a member on the team how long how many years have you been with catholic answers now it'll be seven years that i've been on the payroll thursday september 1st oh well, wow check that out okay. yeah yeah so <laughs> seventh year anniversary coming up all right, nice, nice. Um, now, just uh, before I want to dive into some of the books that you've authored and then and then talk about the Protestant Challenge and, and the brand new book as well, but uh, uh, just your role at Catholic Answers. So you do give talks, but that's not all you do. You what, what else right. do you do there? Well, as you mentioned, I write books, so I'm an author of writing books, but I also contribute to our two editions of Catholic Answers magazine. So we have Catholic Answers Magazine online, Camo for short. That's at catholic.com. Those are free, short, pithy articles that you can access. And then I'll also contribute articles for Catholic Answers Magazine, the print edition. Those are a little bit longer in format. And you can subscribe, go to catholic.com, click on the magazine link, subscribe uh, for Catholic Answers Magazine. Uh, I also, So as you mentioned, I do travel, give some talks, but I also do the radio show. So once a week. I'm on Catholic Answers Live, whether for one hour or both hours, kind of depends. It comes and goes, and it's flexible as far as the schedule. There's no really set rhythm to that, where I take calls, right? And people call in with their questions, and I answer those questions. Uh, we also answer questions via email. So people will contact us at Catholic Answers and then ask a question, and then we'll respond to them. And I also... Um, that's yeah, I think that's about it. Yeah, so that's those are the the duties of the apologist as a staff apologist and speaker at Catholic Answers. So yeah, we got the speaking ministry, the press, and of course we do videos as well. I'm also contributing to Catholic Answers School of Apologetics. So I have a course on purgatory that's been published. I've recorded a course on the on the saints and in particular the intercession of the saints. And that'll be going live and coming out and being published hopefully fairly soon. Uh, so I do contribute to the video uh, ministry as well. That is exciting. That, that's part of the School of Apologetics uh, you mentioned. 
How how yeah. is that going? I mean, that's a quite exciting initiative you guys have been. Yeah, using. yeah. I I'm not up to speed on the numbers, but I do know generally speaking that it's going very well, and people are subscribing and buying the courses and going through the courses, and we're continuing recording. So they were just in the studio last week, Jimmy Aiken, Chris Check, doing some more courses and stuff. Uh, so that's that's been uh, rocking and rolling. And then also, too, uh, part of my job right now at Catholic Answers is working on my dissertation for my PhD right. in philosophy. So I'm doing that as part of my ministry as well. That's sort of a project that I'm undertaking as a Catholic Answers apologist to get my PhD in philosophy. So that's on the deck as well. Wow, you are busy. You are keeping very busy. <laughs> Very excited. Well, I'm, I'm excited. I mean, we've uh, not too long ago launched the Perusia Academy, and I've been talking to Chris Check and, and and looking at some synergy of some sort of um, either cross promotion or, or or some sort of credit or recognition both ways, where Perusia Academy students can go on and do School of Apologetics and vice versa. So we're working sure. this out now, and that's quite exciting uh, um, to see that synergy and, and and the partnership we've been having over the years, and and I can't wait to see the next steps especially in the course, the courses coming up. So absolutely yeah, very exciting. Um, I'm, uh, I'm interested very quickly before I dive in some of your books and then a bit about the Protestant challenge yourself. Are you, uh, are you a cradle Catholic yourself? Just a very quick, brief intro yeah. about who Carlo Brissard is just for those who don't know. Yeah, I'm a boring old cradle Catholic, Chabelle. <laughs> Nothing boring about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm Catholic from the cradle. Uh, my mom was a great witness to me in my younger years as a young boy, establishing a religious sense within me. Had some profound religious experiences as an 11, 12-year-old boy. Uh, religious sense was eclipsed as I got into the teenager years because I was playing Cajun music in the bars and in the nightclubs. And so that religious sense became eclipsed when I started getting into the nightclub environment and playing music there. What, but what is God's, that? Cajun, yes, Cajun music for those for yes, Aussies who yeah, don't so, know that. <laughs> yeah. So it's just it's music from Southern Louisiana. It's music that's distinct to the culture in Southern Louisiana. I played the Cajun accordion. Oh, wow. Right, an accordion. Uh, so you could just look it up online, Cajun accordion, Cajun music. You kind of get an idea. Go to my website, corollabrusar.com, type in Blast from the Past. I actually have uh, some audio clips there that you can listen to to get an idea of what I was doing when I was 18, playing some music. And we kind of did a blend of old folk music and rock and roll, rhythm and blues type stuff. So, but and when, it, when, when I was about 17 or 18, the Lord started giving me some graces to um, remove the covering of the religious sense, that eclipse of the religious sense, and his light began to shine within my heart. And pretty much what happened was I heard a talk by my now colleague and good friend, Tim Staples, and that was what set the fire within my heart to do apologetics. Wow. And what was so that talk? I... What, what talk was uh, that? I think Do you it was remember? His, it was his, yeah, it was his conversion story yep. where he was just yep. kind of talking about his experiences with Matt Dula and stuff. And I was introduced to apologetics pretty much for the first time there in that way with that sort of style of presenting. And that was very attractive to me. And there was something attractive to me about apologetics itself, which was a grace because I was not an intellectual kid. 
So that I was even attracted to apologetics was an infusion of God's grace. And so I started, you know, studying, getting a hold of Tim Staples tape sets from St. Joseph's Communications and doing all of the informal training. And then eventually I decided to give up my pursuit of the musical career and begin pursuing theology. So I went off to college, started my formal training, met my wife, and then the Lord just led me one step at a time, started doing full-time ministry, working at my church parish, teaching at our elementary school theology, and doing director of religious education stuff at the parish. I did that for six years. And then once I got my master's in theology, I started my own 501c3, the Divine Child Institute, and started doing ministry for adult faith formation and moved to Washington State, which is where my wife grew up from seventh grade on. I had a few benefactors there who paid me a full-time salary so that I could go to parishes and teach catechesis, Bible study, all of that fun stuff for adults, adult faith formation. And then I started working with Father Robert Spitzer in the Magis Center. Uh, and then that led to Catholic Answers. And I've been here with Catholic Answers for seven years now, working with the guy, sharing an office with the one who started it all for me uh, wow. many years ago. Praise God. I mean, one thing that's in common there, Tim Staples uh, was when we got a, a, a St. Joseph Communications resources to Australia, one, and he had the largest range, he and Scott Hahn, and he was the first uh, of the speakers to come to Australia. And we, we're looking, going back 13 years now, so um, he sort of sparked, if you like, the the live speaking events for Perusia. So in a sense, we've yeah. there's a he's he's started it all as far as the live events are concerned, and and then and he's been out six times, and we're planning his seventh trip in October. So yeah, yeah, he, he has a tendency to uh, set fires where he goes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he is on fire. All right. Now, um, you're married, you mentioned. How many children? You have children as well? How many children? Yeah, so uh, just had my 19th anniversary of our marriage. Congratulations. Uh, Jacqueline is her name. Yeah, thank you. And we have five children. So my oldest, Dominic, he's fixing to turn 18 next month. Savannah's 15. Elijah is going to be 12 next month. Catherine turned nine. And Nathaniel turned five this past July, so... Fantastic. Oh, that's what a blessing. You don't look old enough to have that many kids or be married that long. You must have been like I, two years old when you got married. <laughs> I started at 21, man. Wow. I thought I was ready to get married at 18, but then that didn't quite work out. I had, some, <laughs> uh, had a few, few folks give me some wisdom and let me grow a little bit. But when I was 20, met my wife at 20 and then got married um, at 21. Wow, fantastic. And uh, yeah, I do want to highlight that you said you worked at the Marges Center. We love Father Spitzer. Uh, yeah. What he's doing is amazing. And I encourage everyone to go there, margescenter.com. Uh, we partner with him as well. He's just amazing. A, a priest, also a scientist, <laughs> and one of the very few. I mean, he is so intelligent. It's amazing. Theologian and philosopher, man. Amazing. I love it. Um, now, Philosophy. I just uh, again, I, you, you're studying the, uh, philosophy. What is philosophy? Just uh, for those, because there is a difference: theology and philosophy. Uh, yeah. The difference between the two. Well, philosophy is the endeavor by reason alone to try and arrive at knowledge of the ultimate cause and causes of things. Right. So we're seeking ultimate explanations basically of why something exists rather than not using reason alone. Uh, there's different branches of philosophy, but 
that's sort of a general summary definition of philosophy, using reason alone to try to get to knowledge about the ultimate causes of reality. That's basically wow. what philosophy is. In contrast to theology, where you're starting with divine revelation, you're starting with some data that yes. has been supernaturally given to us, that which we have not arrived at on our own, but has been given to us supernaturally by Christ, ultimately, and of course, before Christ through in the Old Testament. And then reason comes to bear on that data to begin articulating it, explaining it, uh, penetrating the depths of the data and the knowledge that is there to extract, make explicit that which is implicit. That's basically what theology does. So it's a higher science than philosophy because it's dealing with higher things, the supernatural truths revealed to us in a supernatural way from God. Um, so it's a higher science, but it's starting with divine revelation and then reason comes to bear on it. Whereas in philosophy, you're starting from scratch. You're starting from the armchair, so to speak. You're starting from reason alone. So we're yes. starting with our sense experience, and then we're trying to make sense out of our sense experiences using reason, trying to arrive at knowledge of the ultimate explanation or causes of what we experience, of reality, of being itself. Yeah, so interesting. I mean, um, it's important, you know, we have a sound philosophy and theology, and, and, and it's great uh, to learn about it. But uh, yeah, it, it is. Sometimes we hear the words and they pass by and we don't know what they are, or what it is. And sure. it's good to get a little snapshot. But uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, we have to do another show on that. Bottom line. The, yeah, I know. Right. The bottom line is whenever you ask why you're being a philosopher. That's nice. OK. All right. I like it. Now, you are an author of four books uh, published by Catholic Answers. Now, um, I hope I get this right. So we have Prepare the Way. Um, this is a book. Now, I've got four here. Prepare the Way, Purgatory is Real, Meeting the Protestant Challenge. And the one we're going to discuss a little bit more is um, Meeting the Protestant uh, Response. So right. I'm gonna, that's the recent one. We're going to put that down. I've got three here. Can yeah. you put me in direction? Which one was the first? Prepare the Way. Okay, so that's there. And which one is second? Uh, meeting the Protestant Challenge. All right. And then, and the then third Purgatory one is for Real. Yeah. So can we very briefly on these? Uh, sure. Prepare the way. Uh, overcoming obstacles to God, the the gospel, and the church. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What, what can people expect with this book? Yeah. So in Prepare the Way, I'm basically articulating strategies to help you, the reader, help unbelievers and skeptics overcome obstacles that stand in the way from them encountering the Lord as the Lord approaches them with the gifts of truth and life. So there's a variety of obstacles that people face, right? So mm -hmm. if we're just talking about truth itself, how can there be objective truth when so many people believe so many different things? So that's an obstacle. Yes. And so I'm going to give you some strategies to help remove that obstacle for a person who might be experiencing that. Uh, how can God be all good and how can he exist when there's so much evil in the world? Evil is an obstacle to encountering the Lord. And so I, I coach you in strategies and how to remove that obstacle. So we deal with truth, obstacles to objective truth, obstacles to God, God's existence, God's goodness, obstacles to the gospel, parsed out with obstacles to belief in Jesus, obstacles to belonging to the Christian religion that skeptics might face. 
And then obstacles to the church, you know, certain obstacles that skeptics and unbelievers might pose, not necessarily Protestant challenges, although sometimes some of these obstacles overlap, uh, but, but, but obstacles that an unbeliever or a skeptic might face, such as, oh, the church is oppressive of women because it denies a woman the right to, for, to abortion or something, right? Yeah. Stuff like that. Or the church, why don't the church sell all of its wealth and give it all to the poor, right? That's, you know, that's an obstacle for many people, both Protestant and non-Christian alike. So those are the sorts of obstacles that I coach you in strategies to remove. And that's what basically what we do in apologetics, Charvel. Apologetics is like John the Baptist, preparing a way for the Lord, making straight his path, mm. removing those obstacles, intellectual and emotional, but primarily intellectual for this book, removing those obstacles to make that path straight so that the individual can encounter our Lord as the Lord approaches him. There, it's a it's a, it's a good sized book over 360 pages, and the way it's broken down is quite unique. Uh, you've got different parts, so five parts, but then within those parts there are chapters. Within the chapters, you come up with three strategies, and then there's right. like the path is prepared. I love that. That that's sort of um, yeah. very structured, so people could take one of those obstacles, Absolutely. study it, and get three strategies to overcome that obstacle. And, and they're armed, ready to go. Yeah, but, you, know, you don't have to read the entire book from no. start to finish to get an idea of what's going on. It's a handbook in apologetics that you can just go straight to the challenge or the obstacle, get those strategies in hand. Prepare the way. That's that one there. All right, excellent. These are all available at catholic.com and perusiamedia.com, which is fantastic. Uh, we're, we're honored to be working with you guys. Now, this one is first, but I'm going to put this down because it's a sister to the yeah. other one. So I'm going to jump sure. to this one. Purgatory yeah. is real. Uh, the month of uh, November every year, uh, the month the church dedicates to the holy souls, and we pray for the souls in purgatory. So for Catholics, yeah. we're familiar with praying for the souls, but for many non-Catholics, this is probably one of the uh, most um, uh, misunderstood concepts, purgatory. People, uh, sure. Tell us about this. Uh, it's, it's, it's an in-depth study and a very common um, problem for non-Catholics. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's the number one ranked topic searched at Catholic.com. Wow. It's always asked about on Catholic Answers Live whenever we do Catholic Protestant sort of shows. Yes. And so it's not you would think it's a dead horse, right? That's been beat over and over again since the advent of modern apologetics kind of initiated by our founder at Catholic Answers, Carl Keating. But it's a horse that's alive and well and it's kicking, brother. Hence yes. the reason why we wrote the book, because we didn't have a book in our press from our press in our catalog so that was one of the holes and they were like carlo you mm -hmm. want to write it and i was like sure why not so the book the title of the book basically captures what it's about purgatory is for real <laughs> so i'm going to i give the evidence in the book that purgatory is real so i look at the concept of purgatory in other religious traditions both non-catholic christian and non-christian religious traditions. So obviously it's not going to be the full-blown doctrine of purgatory as a Catholic understand it, understands it in those traditions, but there are elements, aspects of the Catholic understanding of purgatory in those traditions. And what that shows us is that this idea of purgatory, it's not a, a simply a Catholic thing, right? It's not mm. only us who affirm these things about the afterlife. 
this is widely spread out among a variety of traditions, which can give you a rational basis to assent to it, but also give someone who denies purgatory a uh, reason to begin thinking, well, why is my Christian community denying it when so many other people accept it, right? And so it gets the person thinking. Of course, and then I look at the biblical evidence for purgatory, both in, from the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of St. Paul. I look at the early Christian testimony for purgatory and the early church fathers, as well as a survey of the magisterial teaching on purgatory and kind of trace that development of the doctrine within magisterial teaching, identifying where it becomes infallible and where it's taught infallibly. And then I have a chapter where we're engaging in speculative theology, just answering those common theological questions uh -huh. that arise concerning the topic of purgatory that the church doesn't really have a definitive answer to for some of these questions, but there's a strong theological tradition and theological debate about these questions. And so I address some of those as well, like the nature of the suffering, the duration of purgatory and all that cool stuff. Yeah, cool. Oh, wow. Again, it's in, it's in, in those three sections, as you mentioned, other religions, the Bible, early church. Uh, so there's a bit of a theme here. You've got an, a nice structured way of looking at this within the section. So that's right. uh, purgatory. I love the tagline on the, the second good news about the afterlife for those who aren't perfect yet. <laughs> yeah, I forgot to um, mention that. So the subtitle uh, captures the three sections that I have in the book that are entitled joyful truths. Mm. So there, is, there are joyful truths about the doctrine of purgatory. Number one, it inspires the pursuit of holiness once you understand what's going on with purgatory. Like we can start getting rid of those remnants of sin on this side of the veil. We don't have to wait yes. for purgatory, right? That's and right. then also, too, there are certain joys in purgatory that the souls experience that go beyond joys that we can possibly experience in this life. The primary joy being the security of eternal life for every soul in purgatory is numbered among the elect and heaven is guaranteed to them because they died in friendship with Jesus. And so these joyful truths constitute the good news about purgatory. So that's Love a summary it. of it. Purgatory is real. Amen. Well, that's it. That's the book again, available at our websites. Um, let's jump into meeting the Protestant challenge, how to answer 50 biblical objections to Catholic beliefs. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and this is pretty much, uh, I understand the work you do. I mean, this would probably be, if you were to sum up Catholic answers, a lot of what you do would be a lot of Protestant objections, right? Um, this would yeah. be a major part of your work. Absol absolutely. Yeah, it's a major part. It, it was the major part of our work at Catholic Answers for a very long time. But with the landscape of apologetic shifting, mm. now our ministry at, at Catholic Answers goes way beyond the boundaries of the Catholic Protestant dialogue, yes. engaging with the uh, pro-abortion advocates, right? Of course, Trent Horn, that's his baby. He's got that yes. master, right? He's the Mac yeah. Daddy when it comes to that. But also <laughs> with regard to atheism and skepticism and stuff. And so uh, all of us at Catholic Answers are trying to always up our game to meet these pressing challenges. Now it's primarily with regard to sexual ethics, right? Concerning yeah. same-sex sexual activity, the homosexual lifestyle, transgenderism, etc. But uh, the meeting the Protestant challenge, what I'm doing in there, Charbel, is I'm addressing 50 objections that take the following form. How can the church teach X when the Bible says Y? 
And there are mm. 50 of them that I've identified that fit that particular form. So classic example, how can the church teach that Mary was a perpetual virgin when the Bible says Jesus had brothers, right? That's yeah, sort of nice. example parks a lot that expresses what we're what I'm after and what I'm critiquing in the book. So 50 of these objections, uh, which are alleged contradictions between the Catholic belief and the Bible. And th these are challenges that we must be able to meet or answer, because if we're going to believe anything, it at least cannot contradict sacred scripture, because we believe sacred scripture to be the divine word of God, right? Uh, now, granted, what we believe doesn't, from our Catholic perspective, doesn't have to come directly from sacred scripture because we have sacred tradition. But if we're going to believe anything, it cannot contradict sacred scripture. And these are 50 alleged contradictions. And so I coach you in ways as to how you can meet these challenges and show that the particular Bible passage that our friends are appealing to does not conflict the Catholic belief with the Catholic belief, or to state it differently, the particular Catholic belief under discussion does not conflict with the particular Bible passage that our Protestant friends are appealing to. So in the case of Mary's perpetual virginity, the brothers of the Lord, the common response, of course, as you know, Shorbel, the term brother has a wide semantic range of meaning, can include other sorts of relationships that go beyond the boundaries of biological kinship or brotherhood. And so appealing to the word brother itself is in no way refutes the Catholic belief that Mary was a perpetual virgin because the term brother could be interpreted in some other way. So the ambiguity of the meaning of the term brother refute, uh, diffuses the challenge and shows that the challenge does not refute the Catholic belief. And then, of course, I give some positive evidence why we should think that those quote unquote brothers of the Lord are not biological brothers. And of course, that would provide the biblical evidence for the Catholic belief that Mary was a perpetual virgin. Wow. I, I love that. It's a unique way of uh, looking at it because uh, typically, yeah, you, you, you have the objection and then you just respond. But I love how you've picked out the 50 sort of um, so-called contradictions. That's very clever. And and again, this is in parts, the way the way you've done all your books, sections. So this one has yeah. eight sections, um, and within each section you have chapters covering. And I love, I love some of these. Uh, James led the council in the hierarchy. We've got scripture and tradition. We've got salvation. You've covered the sacraments, uh, Mary, the saints, the last things, and then Catholic life and practice. So very, yeah. very structured way there. Fantastic. Yeah, that Catholic, that Catholic life and practice. The key, sort of the poster child challenge there, you might say, is. How can Catholics call priests father when yes. the Bible says, when Jesus says, call no man father? So that's sort yes. of a, another example that captures the form of the challenge there that all of these challenges take. I want to jump into some of those in a bit more detail in a moment. Um, but uh, that's that. And, and the response to that, how you've uh, been well received. Uh, on yeah, from what they tell me, uh, it's, it's a top seller at Catholic yeah. Answers. Um, I don't think I can say it achieved rock star status, <laughs> you know, but, but I think for the most part, it's done very well. And uh, I've got positive feedback, good responses. People have enjoyed reading it and Excellent. have found it helpful. So praise God. It looks like a great one. 
And it's a toolbox. It's something you can just That's have right. again, go straight to a topic and then get the references and absolutely and, and arm yourself. Now, there is a brand new one, Carlo, and this is sort of, as you described to me, a sister book to this. So Meeting yeah. the Protestant Response, How to Answer Common Comebacks to Catholic Arguments. So that is an interesting take because it's not just yeah. a matter of having an answer, but then there's a comeback. How to respond right. to the comeback. So you really are yeah. helping us. What's this one uh, more about? I mean, it's in the yeah, title. But... So, sure. Yeah. So in the Meeting the Protestant Challenge, we're setting out to defend Catholic beliefs, right? Yeah. yeah. In Meeting the Protestant Response, we're basically setting out to defend Catholic arguments, the arguments that we present for the beliefs. So what I do is I look at several classic traditional Catholic arguments, Bible passages that we in our tradition have appealed to for biblical justification of a certain belief. So the papacy, Matthew chapter 16, 18, Peter the rock, Matthew yeah. 16, 19, Peter has the keys, right? Um, John 21, 15 through 7, Peter's given the threefold commission to shepherd and feed Jesus's sheep both young and old. So I go on down the line and all the various different topics, papacy, Mary, the saints, scripture and tradition, salvation, all of those key texts that we always appeal to. And I briefly articulate the Catholic argument and then articulate the common comeback from our Protestant brothers and sisters to that argument. Because it's one thing to present the argument, but then it's another thing to ask, well, what is a Protestant going to say in response? Mm -hmm. Obviously, Protestants have read these Bible passages too, and they're coming to a different conclusion. They're reading it in a different way than we are as Catholics. Yes. So how are our Protestant brothers and sisters reading these texts? And so I articulate how they read these texts and why they do not think that these texts support the Catholic belief. So I articulate that and I give them their voice and then I respond to those comebacks and show how and why ultimately these Protestant comebacks to our Catholic arguments do not succeed and fail to refute the Catholic argument, thus leaving the Catholic argument standing at the end of the day to where we as a Catholic can be confident to appeal to that Bible passage and say, yeah, that's a good biblical text to justify the Catholic belief here. And we can have more confidence in using those texts in conversation by reading this book and going through this book because we're going to be prepared for whatever comeback a Protestant might have to our reading of that text. This is, this is very interesting. I mean, this one's got five sections. Peter and the papacy, and you got sort of five uh, topics there, then the sacraments. Uh, again, another another five, six there. There's Mary and the Saints, Scripture and Tradition, then Salvation. Would, how, would these, um, now they stand alone as standalone books, but absolutely. But, but you also could, I mean, I can almost see the 50 biblical objections, you respond, and then there's, would, would there be crossover here in some that you could then go and get the response from the Protestant to these objections? And, then, and so as a package, these two would go really well together if you want to arm yourself with the Sure. Answer. Yeah, so in meeting the Protestant challenges, the Protestant challenge, some of the answers that I'm giving are providing positive evidence that we normally appeal to, right? Yes. So, and then meeting the Protestant response would have the comebacks to those 
biblical texts or that positive evidence that we, we would employ. So they are standalone books, but they're, they're uh, sisters to each other uh, because they're dealing with Protestant objections that take on different forms. Yes. And one cool thing, one cool thing about meeting the Protestant response is that it, Charbel, one of the intentions I had with the book was to try to help Catholics be able to get beyond mere Bible citations. Yes. Because so often in popular apologetics, our belief is stated, and then there's a litany of Bible passages that are listed to support that belief, but not very much exegesis on the passage. Not very much commentary about how and why the passage supports the belief. Yes. And so what meeting the Protestant response offers as I'm going through those comebacks, it provides an opportunity to dig deep into the text and to offer commentary. So it's great biblical commentary on those passages, but that has apologetical value. So it can serve the purpose of Bible study as well, right? Yeah. And, and what prompted me to write the Protestant response was I, for so many times, whenever people are initiated into apologetics and they just get started and they get super excited, right? And they got all these arguments in hand and people yeah. always tell me, Carlo, these, these biblical texts are so clear. Why don't Protestants get it, right? <laughs> well, there's, a, there's an answer to that question. There are reasons why they don't buy our arguments. There's reasons why, in their mind, they're justified to remain Protestant in the face of the Catholic argument appealing to these texts. And so I wanted to give our Protestant brothers and sisters a voice in the book uh, to articulate those reasons why they don't buy the arguments, and then engage with those comebacks and think through them. And one of the things that comes out of the book, Charbel, is that you discover that our Protestant brothers and sisters, they don't, it's not that they don't get it because they're closed-minded or irrational or just being plain uh, stubborn, right? They actually have reasonable comebacks. Like when I was sifting through the literature, trying to decide which comebacks to put in the book, one of the guiding rule, one of the guiding principles for me was okay, if I didn't have the training that I had, or if I did not have the access to the resources that I have access mm -hmm. to, would I be able to refute this comeback? Or would I find this comeback persuasive? And all of those comebacks that you, that you will find in the book, the answer to that question is yes. Like, if I didn't have the training I had or didn't have the resources I have access to, heck, I might very well be like other like other Christians and saying, yeah, this alternative reading makes sense. The Catholic reading doesn't. <laughs> and so you can kind of get a greater appreciation for our Protestant brothers and sisters and at least have sort of a filter so that we don't become anti-Protestant, just yes. like we don't like yes. Protestants being anti-Catholic. We don't want to be anti-Protestant. So, so it can foster a renewed respect for our Protestant brothers and sisters, of course, ultimately concluding that these comebacks do not succeed, but at least we can see that our Protestant friends are not just being stubborn. They actually have reasons to give for their position of belief. Yeah, so good. Well, I'd love to do something a bit fun now, if you don't mind, is let's take an example of one particular argument, a common thing. Um, we look at the Catholic response, then the Protestant response, 
and then and then with our response again <laughs> so i All just right. wanted to look at just looking at a lot of popular ones here so i was sort of thinking something on purgatory but there's actually um i mean you got a whole book on purgatory yeah uh, in i intentionally i intentionally did not include anything on purgatory because we have the whole book on it yeah. <laughs> i would have just been re-populated uh, you know repurposing the That's same true. materials so now, let's pick um then just from the first section peter and the papacy classic yeah the rock of the church um matthew 16 18 now let's you know let's uh talk about authority most protestants will have a problem with that um and my only authority is the bible how could you yeah. claim that the Pope has the authority? And now, can you let, let's unpack that? So, what's a common sure, way sure. down? How can you follow some sort of uh, human-created religion where we you follow Pope the Pope? Um, this is a man-made religion. Surely, we follow Christ. We don't need a Pope. Right. Um, can you? How do we? How do we go with that? Yeah, so our response would challenge the assumption that was made in the way you articulated that objection that we're following a man-made religion. So that's begging the question against us as Catholics, because we do not believe the Catholic Church is man-made, but it's of divine origin established by Jesus Christ. Okay, so what is the evidence for that? Well, we look to the New Testament and we see that among the disciples that Jesus called to himself and formed this initial community, of believers, Jesus appointed certain of those disciples to be leaders within the community. And among those leaders, he chose one in particular to be that visible principle and source of unity for the community. And we see this in Peter in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus tells him, you are Simon, uh, you are Peter. So it's, it's Simon was his initial name. And then he says, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And that's a key text because if Peter, upon face value, it seems as if he's making Peter this metaphorical rock, right? Uh, the foundation of his church here on earth. And that's significant because if he is this metaphorical rock, then that means Peter is the visible foundation of Jesus's church here on earth. And wherever Peter is, there's the true church of Jesus. Jesus is providing for us seemingly a way by which we can identify which is his true original church. And if he's the foundation, if Peter's the foundation of Jesus's church here on earth, well, then that makes him the leader. That makes him the head, the principal source of unity. So that's sort of the Catholic argument. Peter's the rock. But our Protestant brothers and sisters have a way of countering that argument, and they have a comeback. And that is this. Well, if you look in the Greek text, there's actually two different words that are being used in reference to Peter and in reference to the metaphorical rock. In the Greek, it says, you are Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. And those are two different Greek words. Petros is the masculine noun. Petra is a feminine noun. Now, many will conclude these two Greek words must be referring to two different things because two different words are being used, right? So because Petros, that's in reference to Peter, is not being used in the second instance in reference to the metaphorical rock, yes. then that metaphorical rock ain't referring to Peter. 
It's referring to something else. And our Protestant friends will offer a variety of interpretations. I deal with these in the book. Some will say it's Jesus. Some will say it's Peter's confession. But the point is, is that this is fallacious reasoning, Charbel, to conclude that there are that these two different words are referring to two different things simply because two different words are being used, that's fallacious. That would be like saying, I have one thing in my hand and I call it a rock and I call it a stone. Because I'm using two different words, I must be referring to two different things. Yeah, that's right. Obviously not. You can use two different words and have the same reference, the one thing that you're referring to. Now, somebody is going to counter and say, well, that assumes that the two different words mean the same thing. So maybe they mean different things. Petros meaning a small rock, Petra meaning a massive rock. But I, I address this comeback as well in, that, in this chapter, Charbel, and I give evidence that this is simply not true. Even Protestant scholars affirm that there is no difference in meaning that they mean the same thing. Petros means rock, Petra means rock, and that would make sense of the text. Why change Simon's name within the context of the metaphorical rock if Simon's not going to be the metaphorical rock? The whole point of the name change is to highlight the metaphor that Jesus is using, that Peter is going to be this foundation upon which Christ is building his church. And I also have an answer in the book that even if we concede for argument's sake that they do mean two different things, small stone, massive rock, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're referring to two different things because there's a way in which you can use two different images where the second image builds on and perfects the first. So even if we concede for argument's sake that Petros means a small stone, Jesus could be saying, Simon, you're this small, movable rock, but I'm going to make you into this massive, immovable rock, you see? So the second image can build on and perfect the first image. And then one of the key comebacks here, Shorbel, is that, well, wait a minute. Well, why didn't Matthew use Petros in the second instance? If Peter is this metaphorical rock, you would think that it would have read, you were Petros, and upon this Petros, I will build my church. So why is it Petros used in the second instance? Well, one possible explanation for that is that Petra was the more familiar term to Matthew's readers. Petros was very seldomly used in classical poetic Greek. All right, it's only used twice in the Greek version of the Old Testament in 2 Maccabees. So Petros was a very unfamiliar term for rock. Petra, however, was the more familiar term. It's actually used in Matthew chapter 7, uh, 24 through 25, two times in the same verse, used elsewhere throughout the New Testament for rock. So it's possible Matthew just wants to use the more familiar term. Secondly, it's possible Matthew wants to preserve the parallel with Jesus's parable in Matthew 7. Remember when Jesus talks about the wise man builds his house upon rock? And when the yes. floods and the rains come, that the house built upon the rock withstands the winds and the floods. Well, in Matthew 7, 24 through 25, the Greek word used there is Petra. So whenever Matthew is recording how Jesus is talking about Peter being Petros and upon this metaphorical rock, he's going to build his church. It's possible Matthew wants to preserve the parallel with Jesus's parable. Jesus is the wise man building his house, the church, upon the rock, Petra, which in the context, it's revealed to be Peter. 
And Petra is used in the second instance instead of Petros to preserve the parallel with the Petra, the rock upon which the wise man built his house in Matthew chapter 7. And then finally, I think this is most persuasive, a plausible explanation for why the difference, why not Petros both times, is because Matthew's trying to preserve the distinction between the proper noun and the common noun. It is clear Petros is Simon's new name. Mm. That's a proper noun now. In the second instance, a proper noun is not being used. A metaphor is being used. And so it's perfectly reasonable to use a common noun for the metaphor upon which Christ is going to build his church, the metaphorical rock, not the proper noun, which is Peter. If Petros, the proper noun, would have been used in the second instance, you would have lost the metaphorical intelligibility, right? Because it would have read, you are Peter, and upon this Peter, I will build my church. Wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. In order to preserve yeah, the metaphor, you're going to use the common noun in the second instance and not the proper noun. The very point of the proper noun is to highlight that he is to be the metaphorical rock upon which Christ is going to build his church. So that's just a summary of what I do in that chapter of the book and sort of how the back and forth goes. Love it. Very valuable because, yeah, some people, you know, we, we sometimes look for arguments. What do we believe? So Catholics might look, I, I just want to know, how do we know that the, the, the we, what's the response here? But then you have a counter response and then you're dealing with that and, and giving different possibilities. I love the detail there. Um, and, and, you know, and the, the rock is a rock is a rock. Um, but the way you <laughs> deal with it, it's fantastic. Um, now, there's more on that, and you go on on keys and others. But we're going to move just to a completely different category. Uh, and there's okay. a whole other category, if we can try this again, um, with, say, let's talk about um, Mary and the saints. Can we talk about that? Jump ahead yeah, here. Sure. Um, yeah. uh, now, it sounds quite um, of a big claim to call Mary the mother of God. Yes. Um, how on earth can we reconcile that? How, right. If she's the mother of God, is she a god herself, goddess? <laughs> yeah, the answer is no, right? Uh, the, the reason why we claim Mary to be the mother of God is because she is the mother of Jesus, who is the second person of the Blessed Trinity, mm. who is divine. So in calling Mary mother of God, it's an affirmation of the divinity of the person to whom she gave birth, Jesus Christ. Now, the biblical text that we've appealed to in our tradition is Luke 1.43, and that's where Mary visits Elizabeth, and Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And we as Catholics read that and we say, hey, Lord is a, she, Elizabeth's a good Jew. They use the title Lord in the place of Almighty God, mm -hmm. and so it would seem as if Elizabeth is calling Mary mother of, mother of my God. Mother of my Lord is just synonymous with mother of my God. But our Protestant friends actually have a comeback to our way of reading that text. And the comeback is basically this. Well, wait a minute. You're assuming Elizabeth is using the title Lord in a divine way. But the title Lord very often in the New Testament is used in a non-divine way. And so perhaps what Elizabeth is saying that she is calling the fruit of Mary's womb Lord 
insofar as the fruit of Mary's womb is Elizabeth's Messiah, right? Because Lord can signify a king. And maybe Elizabeth is just affirming the messianic kingship of Jesus, not necessarily his divinity here. And so, therefore, we as a Catholic can't really appeal to this passage to justify our belief that Mary is the mother of God. So how do we respond to this comeback? Well, here's the key, Charbel. It's not merely the use of the term kyrios or Lord. It is true. It can have a divine sense or a non-divine sense. So there is ambiguity. So we can't appeal to the mere use of the word. We have to appeal to the context in order to see which of these senses is the title Lord being used in, mm, the divine way or the non-divine way. Well, when we look at the text, Luke is clearly drawing parallels between this event, Mary, in conversation with Elizabeth, and the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, particularly dealing with David. So take Elizabeth's words themselves. Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That's almost a verbatim quote of David, who says in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, who am I that the Ark of my Lord should come to me, right? Other parallels include John the Baptist sleeping for joy in Mary's womb, paralleling David making Mary and dancing in the presence of the Ark in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5. According to Luke 139, Mary remains with Elizabeth for three months. According to 2 Samuel 6.11, the ark remained in the house of Obedidim for three months. Clear parallels here. Now, here's the key, Charbel. If Luke is drawing a parallel between what Elizabeth says and what David says, well, then surely Elizabeth is using Lord in the sense of Almighty God. Because when David used Lord... In 2 Samuel 6, who am I that the ark of my Lord should come to me? He's talking about Yahweh. He's talking about Almighty God. And if Luke's drawing this parallel, well, then when Elizabeth says, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? We should interpret Lord as a reference to Almighty God, thus being used in a divine way. So it's not the word itself. It's the context that sheds light upon the use of the word, leading us to conclude that it's being used in a divine way. Thus, we could simply translate it as, who is my, the mother of my God should come to me. Just like David was saying, who am I that the ark of my God should come to me? Yeah. So that's sort of what we're doing there in that particular chapter with Mary, the mother of God. Yeah, wow, thank you. I mean, again, you go on in this section, Perpetual virginity, immaculate conception, bodily assumption, intercession of saints. It just keeps going. So they've got to get the yeah. book for that. Can we do one more? Yeah, maybe one one quick more. Yeah. One, yeah. Let's do one last one. Um, uh, let's talk about uh, James two twenty four. How do you know I was going to say that? It was not by faith alone. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, I was talking about that salvation, not by faith alone. Um, yeah. How do we, I mean? Yeah. How do we? How do we yeah. respond? Yeah, so the classic Catholic argument is, okay, we have this idea that works do play a role in our salvation. Somehow, some way, right, we can spend time articulating the way in which works have a role in our salvation, and that's important. But just let's take the general idea, works have a role to play in our salvation. That's juxtaposed and contrasted with many other 
Christian views of works that say works do not have any role to play in our salvation and that we're justified by faith alone and not by works. Well, our evidence for our view is James 2.24, where James says we are not justified, we are justified by works and not by faith alone. So that would seem to be a slam dunk, right? Mm. Like this text supports the Catholic belief that we're not justified by faith alone and that works do have a role to play in our justification or salvation. That's right. But our Protestant friends will say, well, wait a minute, Carlo, you're assuming that when James talks about justification, he's talking about justification in the eyes of God. But the justification that James is talking about is justification in the sight of men. Because just a few verses earlier in James 2.18, James said, show me your faith apart from your works and I by my works will show you my faith. So it's really the eyes of men that is the topic of discussion here. Showing you my faith by my works. So the justification James is talking about is not justification in the sight of God, it's justification in the sight of you, in the sight of men. So that would seem to refute the Catholic argument. So must we close our Bible and no longer appeal to James 2.24? Do we need to toss that passage out to the garbage, right? And no longer use that in our apologetical arsenal? And of course, the answer is no. And I'm just going to give a brief summary here of some of the ways in which we can respond to this comeback. Number one, this comeback fails to consider the salvific context of what James is saying in James 2.24. Because if you back up to verse 14, James says, what does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has not works, can his faith save him? And as I point out in my book, and I argue in great detail, the salvation that James is talking about there is not salvation in the sight of men. It's salvation in the sight of God. That sets the whole narrative, the whole context of what's going to come in the subsequent verses. We're talking about a saving faith, a faith that saves us not in the sight of men, but in the sight of God. This comeback fails to take that into consideration. So we could stop right there and the argument uh, be, be successful. And we, we can stop right there and have proven that the comeback is unsuccessful. Now, here's another way, just very briefly, Charbel, because yeah. coming up to the end of our time here, this idea that justification is in the sight of God, not in the sight of men, excuse me, not in the sight of God, but in the yes. sight of men, it does not jive with the parallel that James draws between our justification and Abraham's justification. Because right before James says that we're justified by works, he appeals to Abraham offering up his son Isaac as an example of being justified by works. Now, check this out, Charbel. Whenever Abraham went up on Mount Moriah and offered Isaac in sacrifice, there wasn't anybody there, right, who was watching. There was no men for that justification to be in the sight of. There was nobody up there. It was Abraham and Isaac. So if that's the parallel, if that's the example for our justification, well, then surely our justification is not a justification in the sight of men, like Abraham's justification wasn't in the sight of men. Our justification is in the sight of God, like 
Abraham's justification, which was in the sight of God. So this comeback falls apart whenever we push this line of reasoning, showing that James is drawing the parallel between our justification by works and Abraham's justification by works. If Abraham's justification by works was justification in the sight of God and not of men, then our justification by works is not in the sight of men, but in the sight of God. And so that's sort of a line of argument that I take, and I go into great detail in that chapter of the book. Wow, thank you. I mean, that's just a taste of what I mean, what you're going in. There's so much more in here. I think the way you articulated it and, and showed the back and forth is brilliant. And every Catholic needs to sort of understand that. Thank you very yeah. much. Um, you're welcome. I, we, all four books available now um, at our website, perusiamedia.com. Those in this region, in the Southern Hemisphere, Australia, New Zealand, you can get these over at our website. Rest of the world, go to catholic.com uh, and you'll see this, all, all of these. And the brand new one, which we sort of tasted just, just in, in today's session was meeting the Protestant response. Well done. This is fantastic. And I think everyone needs to put this in our toolkit, the toolbox. What a great, Absolutely. What a great one. Um, yeah, oh, thank you so much. The, brilliant. Um, and, and you touched on the importance of understanding scriptures, basically in a Catholic context, the idea of old and new Testament, how it works together, the idea of uh, understanding we're not just plucking out verses but we've got to understand what's going on, the author's intention and all that. So there's yeah. so much more to it as a reading the Bible as a Catholic, which I love. Absolutely, brother. Thank you for everything you do. Uh, we're looking forward to getting you down under one day again. Love to get you back on this show again. Um, sure. We're going to do a lot more. We got some of your talks from your last uh, tour in 2019. It's on our, on our platform, um, Perusia on Demand, which we have some of your talks. And also you've got some CDs and DVDs as well available at the website, both websites catholic.com perusiamedia.com not to mention those articles as well so if you want to get more to know carlo please visit catholic.com and get to know what this man's about he's doing amazing work for the church and you just got a little taste there of what he's capable of thank you very much carlo uh, please pray for us down under i will man we hope to see you soon sometime all the best you got catholic um answers uh conference coming up so yep. yeah praying for that and uh and that that's a that has a powerful impact and and, uh, and looking forward to hearing more from you and your next book, whenever that comes out. Absolutely, man. It's in the <laughs> pipe, man. It's on the way. So we're working on it. Awesome. God bless you. And, God bless and you, Shorbell. Thanks for having me, brother. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for watching. That's another Perusia podcast. I'm Shabal Reis, your host. Until next time, God bless. Thanks for listening to the Perusia podcast. If you've enjoyed these podcasts, please share with your family and friends. And for more information about everything Perusia, please visit our website at perusiamedia.com.